good morning. It really is good to be with you. I'm, I've been uh, blessed already. I um, was warmly greeted in uh, Pastor Adam's office there with, by, um, don't tell me, starts with a G, Georgie? Georgie? Yeah, okay, thank you. And uh, we had a wonderful greeting and, and then the play with the praise team. It's been, it's been wonderful. I've appreciated knowing Adam for these years, and uh, he and Ann came, came, stayed with us in Minneapolis for a short time as he ministered to our church there at the sanctuary, and, uh, and Nina was a baby, <laughs> so it's nice to see the, the kids. We shared food with them in Chicago when we were looking for homes in the uh, Chicago metro, so I'm really grateful to be with you, and uh, I'm, I'm sort of... Um, sort of flabbergasted because of Sarah, I mean, what you shared, I feel like on the, on the outline for worship, it had message down there with me. And I said, well, no, you already got the message now. So I thought that was, that was powerful. Thank you so much for sharing so honestly and, and um, straightforwardly with us. Well, I want to be an encouragement to you this morning. At least I hope I can be. And uh, that's a pretty uh, large passage there in First Peter, but we won't be able to get to everything in detail there, but hopefully there'll be some words there that would encourage us along the way. Now, one of the most famous court cases that you may uh, know about and perhaps familiar with is the Brown versus Board of Education case, Topeka, Kansas. It was a school desegregation case, and Thurgood Marshall, who later became one of the justices on the Supreme Court, he relied upon data from a famous experiment um, that, that we may have learned about and know about now. It was performed in the 1930s and 40s by black social scientists, doctors Kenneth and Mamie Clark. What might seem surprising are some of the results. Now, it had to do with dolls, if you remember. And uh, it wasn't surprising that white children picked white dolls as their favorite to play with. But what was surprising is that 67% of the black children also, when given a choice, picked white dolls. The children, black children, viewed white as prettier. They viewed black as ugly. They viewed white as better. And black children had clearly been affected by the society in which they had to survive. And then years later, even after the godfather of soul, James Brown, got many of us to sing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, there was still confusion for a lot of black people. The doll experiment was repeated, it has been many times, and it was repeated um, just a couple years after we had our first child. It was in 1985. 65% of black children still chose the white dolls. Not too much different from what happened in the 1930s and 40s. The doctors who conducted that more recent experiment are Darlene and Derek Hobson. They wrote a book called Different and Wonderful, and they tell this little story. They say, as black clinical psychologists who specialize in children and families, We've had a long-standing professional interest in the positive racial identity development and self-esteem of black children. It was a series of personal experiences, however, that finally led us to begin formal research into the subject. As Christmas 1984 approached, we, like many others, were caught scrambling to do our last-minute shopping. With the shelves emptying fast, we were afraid we might not be able to find everything on our list. Our biggest worry, however, was a shortage of the season's biggest hit, the prize Cabbage Patch Dolls. <laughs> Between our two families, there were six adorable children whom we knew would love the popular Funny Face Dolls. 
As we reached the top of the escalator in one store, we saw a group of people huddled by a table under a sign marked Cabbage Patch USA. Too bad they're all sold out, someone said as we approached. The crowd looked disappointed. Our hearts sank. We'd been this close, but too late. The crowd was reluctant to leave. We all seemed to be hoping that by some miracle, someone would discover a shipment that had been overlooked. When will you get a new supply in? A woman asked the harried clerk. Will they be, uh, be in before Christmas? Are you keeping a waiting list? We pressed closer into the crowd to hear what the clerk had to say. Just then, Derek said, hey, look at this. By now, we both could see that the table was covered with packages of the precious dolls, about 20 in all. Their faces peered at us through the cellophane window in the boxes. We looked around at the crowd. Their faces still showed their disappointment. We looked back at the dolls. They were all different as Cabbage Patch dolls are guaranteed to be. But there was one characteristic they all shared. All were black. To the all-white crowd, they might as well not have been there at all. Now, good parents, try hard to communicate love and security to their children because they know that once their children are out of the house, society won't always be friendly to them. So we tell our children that we love them, that they're special, that God cares about them. If you ever saw the help or read the book, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. And much will happen to discourage our children, but we hope that if they have a good sense of who they are and where they come from, they'll be able to tackle the obstacles that they're bound to face. So it is in the family of God. And before Peter gets into deeper discussion about the Christian's relationship to unbelievers and to the broader society, he must first reinforce the true identity of these Christians. He must make clear who we are before we deal with all that we're up against. So Peter opens this letter. If you were to read earlier, he talks about new birth, talks about having a relationship with God, about being hopeful even though uh, they are facing suffering. He goes on in chapter 1 to talk about holy living as a result of a relationship to God. God says, be holy for I'm holy. And holiness is not about just following rules. Holiness is about being fully devoted to God so that our behavior reflects our identity. So here we are, and I want to look at just three ways that Peter characterizes these Christian believers, and hopefully they can be encouraging to us. First, he compares us to newborn babies. Then he describes us as living stones. And then finally, he calls us peculiar people. <laughs> so Peter points his people to their conversion experience with Jesus. He says, we've been purified because of Jesus. We've obeyed the good news. We are growing in love for one another. I feel like that's a value here, that you all want to grow in love for one another, having obeyed good news, the gospel. So he says, therefore, put away things like malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Notice how all of those things mostly have to do with how we relate to the person right, right next to us. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And those are things that don't demonstrate love, of course. So, so as we think about holiness, something he's talked about, it's important to understand that holiness isn't just about these pious acts of worship that we do when we're inside of the church building. We think God is watching. True holiness impacts how I treat other people. We're to put aside those divisive behaviors and instead become like newborn babies. Newborn babies that are eager for food. They want their nourishment. They will cry out to get it anytime and anywhere. They will wake up to get food. Babies don't care if you're in the supermarket, in church, in bed, at a wedding. They will let their desires be known. 
And Peter wants believers to be as hungry for the word of God as babies are for milk. And in this context, pure spiritual milk doesn't just mean the, um, the simple things in, in contrast to the hard things. That's the way some people think of, of milk, because in the Bible it does refer to milk versus solid food. But for here, for Peter, he's using milk to refer to God's word in general. The word of God is pictured as what will give us nourishment, what will give us strength. So I, I spent my life mostly trying to understand the Bible. It was my curiosity that pushed me to do the PhD in biblical studies. I wanted to understand the God of the Bible and also gain a better ability to interpret and teach the scriptures. But I've observed over time how unsure a lot of Christians are about the role of the Bible, even in Christian faith. So there are some who are very hyper-literal with the Bible, you know, like that story of the sun standing still in the book of Joshua. So, you know, when scientists figured out that it was the sun that was standing still and the earth was moving, the church said he was a heretic. So we, we have Christians like that today who paint themselves into a corner with hyper-literal approaches to things. Then there are those on the other extreme who figure the Bible is a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, pull out a few verses that they like, toss out the rest. And some Christians exercise tremendous freedom to throw away things they just don't like. I don't feel so free at most of the time. Somewhere mixed into these various attitudes is what I call a superstitious perspective to the Bible. And that's by far the most common attitude I've encountered in American Christianity. People will treat the Bible as if it's a list of incantations. I don't know if you've ever seen a scary movie. We Christians, we won't admit to it. But you know, if you see something like, like Harry Potter or or, well, that's not scary, but, well, it got scary. Or um, by the fourth book, man, I was like, whoa, I got to finish this. Um, or, um, or The Mummy or movies like that. Actually, I was talking about this very idea, and I showed a clip from the Harry Potter movie. I got myself in a little trouble with some of the parents there, so I didn't bring a clip for it because I said, I don't know these people that well. I'm not going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's a, there's, in those movies, you just have to say it the right way. Wingardia Leviosa. So, oh, sorry. I just did a Harry Potter thing. Sorry. Anyway, but the point is, it's the incantation that seems to be the magic, right? I mean, and you see all this, and all of a sudden, somebody just says the words, and things start floating around, and all kinds of stuff happens, either destroys or gets better. There's people who treat their Bibles like that. It's just a list of incantations. If I pull out the verse and I, I say it, or I just claim it, then the magic will start to happen. In fact, they will sometimes rely on that magic without even expecting their behavior to change. I don't believe in that superstitious approach to the Holy Scriptures where I just pull out an incantation. But neither do I believe that the Bible is just simply some ancient, mysterious writing. I believe that the Bible's a witness. It's a revelation of the person and character of God. Therefore, I believe we study the scriptures so we know God better, not just so I can find verses that I like. It'll help me know myself better. God's words are lamp to my feet, a light to my path, sharper than any double-edged sword. The word is at the foundation of my identity. It's not a book of rules. I think of it as a love story, even the Old Testament. 
The scriptures declare God's love for people and teach us how to live a life of love before God and others. And I want to be like a hungry infant craving God's word. And Peter quotes the Old Testament. He says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever, forever. So let me encourage you to keep putting yourself in a place where you can study God's word for what it is and let your delight be in the word of the Lord so you can be like that tree that's planted by rivers of water that, that brings forth its leaves and season it, whatever it does, prospers. After encouraging us to be like hungry infants, Peter says we are living stones. In the last church I served in Minneapolis, we actually did build, build a building. We had been meeting in schools for years and when I came, we were still meeting in schools, but there was a group who explored the idea of us having a permanent space and a space that would be open for our community to use in a variety of ways. So I won't tell you the whole long story. It'll take too much time, but, but we did it. And before I left, we have a beautiful community-centered building there. But as I was ministering, many times I tried to encourage the church that I said, we're putting time into this, we're putting energy into this, we're putting money into this, into a building. But it wasn't because we believe the building is the church. The people are the church. And I see a building as a a vital part of of a church living out its calling. And I don't want to minimize how significant the building is. But at the same time, I want to emphasize that Christians together are the house of God. Together, we represent Jesus to the world in a building and outside the building. The spiritual house, as Peter would say. It's the place where God dwells, like the temple. And believers are not on the outside looking into the house, but are the very stones that make up the house. We are the house of God. Amen. God dwells among us. Jesus is the cornerstone, the very foundation of the house. And as living stones, then, we share in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, rejected by humanity, but chosen by God, precious to God, so are we. Humanity at times will reject us, some of our values, some of our thoughts, some of our commitments, but we are precious to God. All who believe in Jesus will never have to fear facing humiliation and judgment. What good news for people who are continually humiliated by those around them. Now, maybe some of you experience the weird tension that I do. When I meet a new person, say like when I'm on an airplane and the person next to me is chatty, which for an introvert, that's hard, but I try, I try to roll with it. <laughs> and eventually I get asked, what do you do? The tension is that I don't always want to say I'm a pastor. Well, now I'm a professor, so maybe I can get around it. But I used to, do, I used to say I'm a teacher and a preacher. Because you say you're a pastor, and it's a surefire way to watch this person's facial expression change. And often they'll put it into the conversation, which isn't always that bad if I really did want to take a nap. But it's bad because then they have like this set of assumptions. Or, you know, you meet some people in a fun context. Like when I was younger, I used to get into a pickup game of a touch football or something like that. And then they find out you're a preacher, and then they all start apologizing for their cursing. As if we've never heard those words. Or use them. I I just think that this, anyway, but it's a identifying somebody yourself as a Christian is tricky. The word evangelical is certainly politically loaded. I know some people don't even like the word disciple because it just sounds too religious or something. The word Christian can be a trigger. 
I mean, it might stir up negative reactions to some people because instead of remembering all the good that Christians have done through the centuries, we're currently known for being self-righteous, hypocritical, anti-education, bigoted, politically narrow, and, and stingy. I, I've been in the restaurants and when I was at a conference, and uh, I tell the story in my commentaries that I, we took off our name tags, my friend and I, but some other people left their name tags on because some people forget when they leave the hotel that you don't even want strangers calling you by name. But anyway, so we take our name tag. So the, the server, she was having fun with us. She didn't know we were, and she started talking about those Christians at the conference, and she just fully expected not to get much of a tip. And I know Christians who are stingy with tipping, but they leave a track. We have a reputation sometimes. It's not always good. But as living stones built on Jesus, the foundation stone, we represent him in the world. And I would not call Jesus self-righteous or hypocritical. I wouldn't call him wishy-washy. So when we crave spiritual milk like that baby, we learn to be more like Jesus. And as a spiritual house, we better represent Jesus. And sometimes after a big event like the Super Bowl or an awards show, You'll see videos and pictures of performers who are praying or, or people mentioning God in their interviews. And some people who don't go to church find that very annoying, while some Christians find it very encouraging. I mean, there was, there was a picture someone showed me of Justin Bieber out there. I think he had a uh, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller book in his arm. And everybody's like, people just love that. Christians don't want to look like losers. So we often find it very meaningful that a celebrity will mention God. And I understand that. You know, I was a young pastor. I used to do chapel services for the New York Jets when I had a friend who worked in ministry with the Jets. And, and it was kind of fun. But I got invited back, he said, because, because I talked to them like regular guys and I wasn't starstruck. He said that I was just treated them like any other person who was trying to live out their faith. But I know that we like this notion of Christian celebrity. What I'm trying to say is that as living stones, all of us can represent Jesus. I mean, it's great that some celebrities will find new life in Jesus. I think it's awesome. But your witness for Jesus is just as awesome. I would put Sarah's testimony up against anybody talking about their faith. I don't care if they're a celebrity or not. We're living stones, part of God's house, representing him to the world. We are a safe haven for people who need love. We shed light on those who are in darkness. We bring truth to those who've been deceived. We bring healing to those who've been damaged by society in body and spirit. We bring good news to those who've been beat down and demoralized and ostracized and minimized and marginalized and even demonized. We show people that it's worth it to put their trust in Jesus. And as Peter says, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Amen. Well, here in verse 9, the NIV that we read from uses the phrase God's special possession. Well, you know the old King James says peculiar people. So contemporary ears hear the word peculiar and think bizarre, eccentric, odd. And maybe that's how Christians are viewed. (laughs) And maybe in Peter's time as well as our time. But maybe we could recapture that King James word and think of other synonyms that go with peculiar, like curious, exceptional, extraordinary, remarkable, mysterious. Those words suggest that God's people are an intriguing group that lives in such a way that they invite the interest of onlookers. 
There are other words here, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. There's no time to go into each of those phrases. But this idea of being a priest is not so much that we can go to God on our own, which is what a lot of people have taught. It's really about us representing God to others as his priesthood. So think about it. How do we represent God in the world? Is it through our politics? Is it through our money? Is it through our status? Peter's people represented Jesus to the world by having no special status. They witnessed for Jesus while on the margins. They witnessed for Jesus through suffering. And that's why I think Christians can learn a lot about our faith from those in the majority world who often have little status or material possession but have great faith in God. So instead of Christians living in a way that justifies selfishness and narcissism, we need to recall how to witness for Jesus. And I mean witness in our lives, not just in our words, how we do this from a place of humility. I forgot which time I started up here, so I don't know how much time I have left, but I'm going to tell you a little quick story here. So I was, I was a young guy. <laughs> uh, I, I have a degree in chemical engineering, and um, I was working as a young chemical engineering intern in, um, in uh, Buffalo, New York for Mobile Oil. And, I, and a guy from, another guy from New York who was working on an engineering degree at a different school, we found each other and rented this house for our time of our internship. I'm, I'm an introvert. I like to keep to myself. My roommate, Robert, was a lively guy, extrovert, lively, noisy. Anyway, we were getting along, a little bit of an odd couple, but we were getting along. We even shopped together so we could figure out how to cook our meals together and stuff. His mother turned out to be really excited that he was rooming with me because she was this Christian, and she wanted a, a, a godly influence on her son. And I didn't realize, I didn't know any of that until after we moved in. So one week she was going to come, one weekend she was coming to visit us. She was an evangelist in her church, and she let everybody know she was an evangelist. And she, um, and she was convinced her son was going to be a preacher despite his anti-Christian attitude about everything. So, so he was excited to have his mother come. So he was charming. He was so charming that he charmed this young uh, engineer at work, full-time young woman, to borrow, uh, to loan her car out for the weekend. She had a Volkswagen Beetle, and it was a stick shift. I should add that Robert and I, both from New York, neither of us had driver's licenses. And that was... Um, I mean, we grew up in New York. We, didn't, we were 20-something years old. We didn't need our driver's license at the time. But he still managed to get this car with a stick shift. So he was insistent on me um, hanging with him and meeting his mother because his mother was really curious to meet me. So I said, Robert, I don't want to be in the car with you if you don't, can't drive. And he got a quick, like, tutorial. He kept stalling out and everything. And I'm like, I don't want to. So he insists. Anyway, I agreed that I'll go with him to the train station to pick up his mom, but that's it. He said, well, my mom's got a car like this. She'll drive after that. Cool. So we get to the train station, pick her up, greetings and everything, introductions. She says, I'm tired, Robert. You can drive. So mom is willing to let son with no license drive. I'm now feeling like I'm being held hostage because I don't know how to get out of this situation. So we go out to eat to a place I've never been. And then we're in Buffalo. I, should, I think I told you. So Robert wants his mom to see Niagara Falls. So we actually go to another country with Robert not having a driver's license. Canada is another country. So we go to the Canadian side to see, to see Niagara Falls. So we get over to the other side, and we're looking for a place to park. 
So Robert is trying because, you know, he got a parallel park. He's driving a car he's not driven before, a stick shift that he just learned how to drive that afternoon. And so we're looking along for a parking spot. And as we're coming, somebody pulls out. So Robert goes up and he's trying to find reverse so he can parallel park. So he's trying to find reverse. Somebody starts coming behind us to take that spot. Mom is really agitated. So she opens the door to yell at that person not to do that. And that's when Robert found reverse, just when the door was open. So we scraped all alongside that person's car. So, so Robert's mother slams the door. She goes, go, Robert, go. So, <laughs> but Robert can't find first gear. So, <laughs> so I'm sitting in the back like, oh, my goodness. So all these people think that we're trying to take off. So people start coming from the sidewalk and, and from their cars, and they're yelling. They said, you can't go. You stay here. Stop, stop, and all this. So Robert's mother gets out the car. She goes, I'm an evangelist. I'm an evangelist. <laughs> And Robert is sitting at the steering wheel, Mom, not now, Mom, not now, Mom. Well, the cops come. The owners of the car come. And then as they're coming, the owners of the car actually get there before the cops. And the guy's looking at the car. But the wife of the man who's looking at the scrape, she's, you know, talking to us. And Robert's mom is saying to him, I'll tell them I was driving. And the woman heard that. She said, oh, so you're going to lie for your son. She said, I thought you were an evangelist. Well, this sparked an interesting conversation. <laughs> the cops actually didn't, uh, didn't really care about it. They, they managed to amicably you know, exchange their information and so forth. But there was an interesting lesson for me that I never forget. I, I knew that her attitude was one of this pride of having this office in the church and having this title. But what was she representing to the rest of the world? Shouting, she's evangelist, but she was well prepared to lie to cover for her son. Hmm. I think Peter's telling us that as living stones, we represent Jesus to the world. Oh, we won't do it perfectly. But as Pastor Adam said, we do it with humility and truth. I think that's what Pastor Adam's book on justice can help us do. How we live out our faith to the rest of the world to sort out what does it mean to work together as witness. Unfortunately, Christianity has become a spectator sport, so people watch. We want the music to entertain us, preachers to put on a show, children's department, keep our kids stimulated. If we don't like the show, we'll go someplace else to find a better one. I don't think the people that got Peter's letter would ever even recognize sometimes what the church in America has become, except when we are honest, humble, truth-seeking people. So I just want to encourage you, keep on being those living stones who represent the Lord to the world, not just by yourselves, together as a community who loves God's word and who is uh, peculiar, peculiar in our love and generosity, in our trust. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and thank you that you are present among us. I agree, Lord, that it seems that you were especially delighted to visit us today in words of testimony, in, in our worship time of singing, in our worship time of scripture, our worship time of uh, going into your word together. 
So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to guide us. Give us the grace to maneuver this week as living stones. Help us to remember when, we're, when it's Tuesday and we're tired and work is tough, or we're dealing with kids or dealing with parents or dealing with struggles. Help us to remember that we're living stones together, part of your household. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.